0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Our
1: guest today is Marshall Fisher from the Operations, Information, and Decisions Department at Wharton. And we're going to talk with him about a new study that he has just published in the Harvard Business Review, with two of his co-authors, Vishal Gaur and Herb Kleinberger, uh, about uh, lifestyle stages in the retail industry. Uh, Marshall, welcome to Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mikul, it's a pleasure to be here as always. So, it, well, uh, I wonder if we could begin by telling us a little bit about how, how the, the idea for this story came about. So, gosh. Um, my
0: co-authors and I have worked with retailers for a long time, maybe 20 years, and back in the mid-90s when we started working with the retailers, all the successful ones, or many of the successful ones, were uh, category killers that had been founded in the 70s and were still growing at a hugely rapid rate. You can think of Home Depot, Staples, uh, Urban Outfitters, long list of Retailers. That was the iconic success of the time. Still pretty young, still an innovative format, uh, still rapid growth. And I remember wondering, you know, eventually—and we could add Walmart to that list—eventually this, this can't go on forever. Uh, I looked at Walmart's growth rate in their first 20 years. It was 43 percent per year compound annual growth rate. I did a little calculation as to what their uh, revenue would be now, today, had they kept growing at that rate. And the, and the answer was, like, their revenue would be more than triple the world's GDP. So <laughs> it's, it's obvious that you eventually run out of places to put stores. Or uh, if you're even an Internet retailer, growth, the rapid growth, depends on attracting new customers. There's a finite number of people in the world. So... You're going to have to slow. And um, my co-authors and I wondered. So then, what? You know, do you curl up and die? Uh, given how much uh, emphasis is placed on top-line growth, it's it's glamorous, it's cool, it's everybody likes it. Uh, so what happens when it inevitably slows? How did you go about conducting your study? So we got um, we Vishal, being our Uh, data analytics guy, collected data on, um, gosh, several hundred publicly traded U.S. retailers. And we narrowed that down to uh, 37 retailers that had been continuously in business for a 22-year period, ending in 2015. Because we were doing the study, we actually ended in 2014. Because we started this in 2015, took a couple years, and we updated it. Um, and as a group, they'd been growing at around 15 percent, and in the last five years, that growth had slowed to four and a half percent. So um, th- they'd all gone through this life cycle of rapid growth to maturity, and. Most of them had kind of languished their stock had been flat in the last five years. But there were a handful that were really rocking. The um, example was uh, Footlocker had experienced single-digit growth in the last five years, but a uh, total stock market return of 33% per year, which has kind of tripled the S&P, and for
1: a five-year period. That that's that's really remarkable growth. And the question is, of course, if this a group of handful of people that are rocking. And I think of the group of thirty seven, there were seventeen that right. that, that sort of that, forged uh, that 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 were successful. How did they do it? Uh,
0: so first of all, they they we define success as a uh, five year total stock market return that exceeded the S and P five hundred return. So seventeen were above, twenty were below. Um, They did a couple things. They stopped or greatly slowed their rate of opening new stores and got— and by the way, the winners and losers had essentially the identical growth rate, top-line growth rate. The winners got that growth mostly through existing stores, whereas the less successful group got their growth mostly by opening new stores. So you can think about which is easier opening a new store, or somehow getting your customers to you know, drive more traffic and more sales through existing stores, first thing's much easier, much easier to open a new store. Not trivial, but a lot easier. But which is more accretive uh, to earnings, it's the comp store sales, because you're leveraging an investment you've already made in your existing store. So, What retailers call comparable store sales growth is incredibly
1: enhancing to profit. What's interesting to me is uh, even though opening new stores is easier, it's also probably much more expensive. It's more expensive. And and so uh, going back to the title of your study, what's driving this addiction to growth? Even though people realize that that, that they're... Driving growth at the cost of their productivity. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, And just to
0: reemphasize the point you made about uh, opening stores has a cost associated with it. When Walmart was growing at 43 percent, they were opening stores at about the same rate, 43 percent, and their profit was growing about 43 percent. So what are they doing? They're running their business through a copy machine. Mm-hmm. they turning out mm-hmm. more and more copies of the exact same business. They did some enhancements to the business model. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, you're just scaling, okay? Um, that's a great game to play as long as you have the, enough places to put new stores to play that game. Eventually, you're putting stores in less desirable locations. You're uh, cannibalizing existing stores. And so suddenly— <clears throat> you open X percent new stores, and revenue doesn't grow by X percent. It grows by something a little smaller than X percent. Uh, and then what happens is your expenses are growing faster than your revenue, which is eroding eroding your earnings. Uh, why is it so hard to let go of that? Because I thought the most interesting finding was not the formula for success, which is drive comparable store sales once. Uh, Bob Marshall from... Uh, McDonald's had been a vice president with McDonald's. They were one of the successful retailers. I hmm. talked extensively with Bob, interesting guy. He said, look, the formula for success is scale until you run out of geography hmm. and then drive comp store sales until you run out of ideas. Hmm. So the s- scaling by opening new stores, that's pretty much an execution game. If you, if I would be with a Walmart executive, they're constantly on their iPhone. I mean, they're working like demons, sun up to sun sunset with a to do list. They're executing, because mm-hmm. uh, that's the open star game. Uh, the driving comes sales, you got to be more thoughtful. That's an idea game. They're very different games. If you uh, Not to pick on Walmart or sound like I am because I have great admiration for them. But if you are playing the execution game, they famously disdain hiring from the Ivy League. You know, we don't need those highfalutin Ivy League types. That's a different kind of talent than if you're figuring out ideas. I can tell you what some of them were for driving additional sales through your store. So it's a different game, requires different talent. Um, I think in general, the uh, popular world, the business commentators uh, like growth. It's a positive, simple story to understand this idea that, oh yeah, we're not growing the top line all that much, but we figured out all these smart ways to grow our bottom line. That maybe sounds a little like financial engineering to people and their eyes glass over. So, whether it's the, the financial uh, investment world, the uh, uh, stock market analysts, uh, consultants, <coughs> they all like to talk about the growth story. So it's, it's a kind of addiction, I think. And also, if you've been opening stores, and that's been your modus operandi, you've got a whole group within the company whose job is to, is to open stores. you would have to, you know, fire that group or curtail them. So there's an infrastructure in most retailers, both emotionally and physically and external forces leading them that way, that make their first thought when growth slows to redouble their top-line growth. There's kind of a denial period.
1: I understand.
0: And all... There were many of our successful retailers, Home Depot, McDonald's would be a couple examples. They went through a period of maybe five years where they pushed growth beyond the point where it was there to be profitably had and had to at some point say,
1: wait a minute, this isn't working. We've got to change our game. In changing the game, how do you make the transition from a mindset that is focused on execution, execution to a mindset that's focused on ideas. How, how do you do that?
0: So well, step one, I think, is to accept reality. <laughs> so you need to collect metrics, sales per store, for example. Uh, or you, most of the successful ones used return on invested capital. So for a new store, there's an investment. There's a return, which is the profit on the sales. You need to uh, slow or stop opening new stores when that number goes the wrong way. So that's step one, I think, is simply look around you and assess the effectiveness of what you're doing. Then um, there's a different set of projects you've got to put on your capital budgeting list, which are things that drive uh, comparable store sales through your existing stores. Uh, Example, Foot Locker got to install the device. This is one of like 20 or 30 things they did. It's called a scan gun. We all know what the shoe process is like. You go in, you tell the sales associate what you're looking for. He goes to the back room, he brings out two or three pairs. You try them on, maybe one doesn't fit, one you like, don't like the color, and he goes back and forth to the back room, typically five, six trips. Uh, it takes a long time. And meanwhile, you're leaving the customer sitting there. So Foot Locker uh, put in place uh, the scan gun that would let the sales associate, while he's in front of the customer know exactly what's in stock in the back room of that store, neighboring stores, or on the internet. So he could have um, a more helpful conversation with the customer on what they've got that might be more what you're looking for, and could have an assistant bring those shoes shoes out to them. So that added, uh, they estimated 2% to store sales. Hmm. Not a huge number, but you do 20 or 30 things like that. All of those take an investment, just as opening a new store takes an investment. So I would say in your capital budgeting process, you start looking at not just new stores as investments to drive top line, but things you can do within the stores,
1: like technology. In addition to Footlocker, you also mentioned Home Depot, uh, and, and McDonald's <clears throat> right. as, as retailers that did very well. Uh, do you have any examples of uh, sort of, <coughs> of the ideas that they implemented to, to more intensively yeah, drive absolutely. business through their yeah, stores? Yep, yeah. and
0: um, other ones I'd put on that list are Macy's, Dillard's, and Kroger. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Home Depot uh, did private label. <coughs> they conceived and added private label products uh, to their stores. They used, leveraged the Internet omnichannel. Um, Macy's had a concept they called their "Mom" strategy, which was an acronym. My Macy's was the first M. Omni Channel was the second. So, My Macy's was uh, localizing assortment by store. You, th- you think about what are the call it factors of production in a store? It's the assortment you offer, in what quantities, at what price, and what staffing levels do you have in the store? All of those things, I do this in my research. You can measure, uh, you'll see variation over time in staffing levels, for example. You can measure, correlate that, you can do the same thing with price, with what's happening to revenue. Measure the impact of changing your price on revenue or changing staffing levels in this store in a particular hour on revenue. So all those things can be optimized. Um, McDonald's did uh, menu additions added things to their menus. Kroger used uh, analytics a lot in their stores. Mm-hmm. Uh, Giving you an example, they they know <clears throat> they have traffic counters so they know when people are entering the stores. They all also have POS data so they know when people are leaving the store, and they know typically how long it takes someone to shop in the store. So they started this may sound low tech, but it had a big impact. Mm-hmm. They started forecasting when people would show up at the cash register and then staff in to that forecast, cut the wait time, I think to check out from, if I remember, right something like three minutes to 10 seconds. So that drove one or two percent comparable store sales. right You look at all of these things, any one thing, is a little bit of blocking and tackling. It looks not that dramatic, but 1% or 2% plus sales, if you're doing 20 or 30 things like that, uh, becomes big, big news. That, that's how the total stock market return of the 17 retailers that followed this approach over the period 2011-2015 was 20%, significantly above S&P 500. The the other group, twenty retailers that continued to rely mostly on opening new stores, their total stock market return was two percent. So, factor of ten difference between the successful retailers and and the less successful.
1: Now, one of the stories we often hear in the media uh, is that retailers are uh, doing badly. I mean, repeatedly we hear, hear um, news stories about uh, you know retail chains going bankrupt. <clears throat> and, and and so the overall narrative seems to be that brick-and-mortar brick retail is doomed because of the internet. Uh, to what extent do you buy into that narrative, or, or is it too simplistic? It's too simplistic. Our,
0: our story, I guess, would be a little more nuanced, is that, first of all, we think that assuming a consistent... Situation for the entire retail industry is obviously silly. You've got new startup retailers lots of them that are still in the high growth phase You've got some retailers that probably their reason for existing has gone away and they are going to go out of business but I think what we learned is that a segment of retailing bricks-and-mortar retailers that have gone through a life cycle of high growth and are now in maturity that segment is struggling because they're for the majority of them are following the wrong strategy. And by the way, this applies not just to retailers, but I think any company uh, or countries need to adjust their strategy at different points in their life cycle. So China was high growth for once their economy opened up in 1979. They had, you know, huge growth through basically labor cost arbitrage. Well, wage rates have gone up in China, double digits, which is good. That's what the Chinese government wanted. But eventually, you can't, you can't play that game anymore. So, their growth has slowed. They've got to play a different game. So, retailers, companies, countries, I think, all need to adjust their strategy over time as they start with high growth and inevitably see that growth not decline but slow. Slow. So we're not talking no growth. Uh, Ken Hicks from Footlocker Locker commented, he said, I can leverage as little as 2% revenue growth. So he can live with 2%, same with Macy's, but not zero or, or negative.
1: If we had with us right now the CEOs of some companies that are up against this slowing growth phenomenon, what advice would you give them to deal—how how, how they should deal with it? Uh, well, recognize that it's a change. That uh,
0: So I've talked about retailing, where opening stores is the growth inst- instrument, or the most commonly used one. Um, and their change would be to shift to uh, doing investments in technology or process changes within their stores to drive comparable store uh, sales growth. Other companies, non-retailers, I think, would have to think through what is that logical shift in strategy. Uh, So we talked about China. What they're doing is um, shifting out of low-end manufacturing. They don't want to be the t-shirt maker of the world anymore, and focusing on innovation, Mm -hmm. branding, and uh, selling within the internal economy. And there's some Chinese companies emerging that are a different breed from the factory owners that made footwear and apparel in the 80s, 90s, and even the last decade. Um, so, that, so that's another example of the, the largest by population country in the world going through this same Interesting. transformation. Interesting. What surprised you most about this study? That's an interesting question. That there, that you can be phenomenally successful. That, that the successful group uh, put up a 20% stock market return over a five-year period. Oh, phenomenally successful. That they all uh, followed a pretty consistent strategy. That it was—when I would talk to people about how do you grow your earnings— when your top-line growth slows, common answer would be, well, it's cost-cutting, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't cost-cutting. It was asset leverage. So it was a different strategy than we thought of. Uh, So those were all surprises. The biggest one, though, is just how many companies have this addiction to growth. And it took us a long time to come to that title Um, But it was slowly dawned on us when we looked at even the successful companies that went through periods of denial, Home Depot, McDonald's, uh,
1: and how hard it was for them to make the transition. And if I could ask you one last question, Marshall, Uh, uh, did any questions come up during the study that you would like to address through future research? And if so, what would that be? I think maybe it would be
0: interesting to see the degree to which this applies to Internet retailers, because even though they don't open stores, they do acquire customers. And just as there's finite space for stores, there's finite customers in the world. I think it would be interesting to uh, think about how it applies the lifecycle idea to companies
1: other than retailers
0: uh, or to countries.
1: Marshall, thank you so much for talking with Knowledge thank of Wharton.
0: Thank you, Michael. It's always a pleasure. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.